You're listening to Critical Faith, a podcast about religion and public life sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student here at ICS. On Critical Faith, we explore the contours of religion in a plural society. We'll hear from researchers, activists, educators, students, and more as we try to think through what makes faith such a crucial component of so many of our lives. Along the way, we'll also let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, our spiritualities, and our communities. In the next two episodes, we'll hear from Kate Hennessy, author of Dorothy Day, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. Kate knows a thing or two about her subject matter because Dorothy Day is her grandmother. Like in the previous three episodes, these episodes are pieces of an afternoon ICS. In the first episode, we'll hear Kate talk about her book and share a few stories about the Catholic worker, her life, and her grandmother. In the next episode, I'll interview Kate and get her thoughts on her own experience with the Catholic worker and what that movement could mean today, and then Kate will take some questions from the audience. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. That's a really helpful thing for podcasts, especially when they're new like ours. It helps people to find us on the internet, and it keeps people engaged. You can also find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu. is one in a series of events that, like Ron said, uh, trying to, to establish those connections between um, activism, community work, philosophy, theology, all the things that we're all about here at ICS. Um, just regarding the format of the, of the event, we're going to have a presentation by Kate. She will, um, at the end of it, read some of the passages of her book. Um, and then after that, we'll have an interview um, Dean Dedlow, one of our uh, PhD students at ITS, will interview her, and after that we'll open it to a Q&A session. Um, just about Kate, um, I had the, the privilege of hearing her yesterday. She um, spoke at an event at the Mayor Ward Center, and uh, when she was introduced, they were talking about her family and listing all her siblings, and because that's key to, to her life, to her book, to the story of who her grandmother was. Um, and I, I think that what I can maybe pick up from that and what will speak to, to all of us of her story is that, uh, Kate is someone who has kind of dedicated her life in, in, in her, um, in her book, um, to understanding how one leaves the call to, um, to be a Christian in, in a, in public, um, and how the, challenges and the um the ambivalence that comes with um with you trying to live a christian life in a world that for whom that's counterintuitive so that's that's some of the things that i pick up from what what she said as well um we're all kind of struggling to do the same here um i think we're all trying to to do um what you your your family your grandmother tried to do not to the same extent but but we're slowly trying to to get there so we want to hear your stories we want to uh make sure that we uh take note of best practices and see 
how can we um, navigate those difficulties and continue to try to be a Christian voice in, in society. So um, please join me to welcome Kate. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for inviting me. You know, it, it uh, really is a um, it really is an honor to uh, be able to tell the story of my grandmother and my mother. Um, now, Hector really set me up to like answer some questions, some deep questions, and I don't know if I have any of those answers. You know, you know, I consider myself a storyteller, um, I, and I've been given the gift of being able to tell the story of my grandmother and my mother. Um, what it all comes, what it all comes down to in my book is that, um, you know, the story of Dorothy Day is just fabulous. I mean, it is an amazing story. She really was quite something. And, um, and I just feel both honored and kind of blown out of the water to have her as my grandmother. You know, it, I had to struggle for many years to, to figure out well, what was it that I was meant to do in face of her life and my mother's life. Two very strong women in, in my life. But really, my book really comes down to just a story of the love between a mother and a daughter. And it's a story about family. And it's a story about family that's envisioned in a very different way than what we normally envision. That it's, um, you know, both my mother and grandmother were, were brilliant and genius at expanding the notion of family. And that is really the basis, for me anyway, I can only speak for myself, that's the basis of what um, I have learned from both my grandmother and my mother, that everything that they did was not, you know, um, was not framed in any kind of academic or theological um, or even, um, you know, policy or, or however you want to define or work with um, social justice and social change, it was person to person, face to face, and it was an incredibly welcoming um, uh, notion of what community is. You know, the, the, the work that my grandmother did is the hardest work. It is, it is incredibly hard. Um, she was working with, she was inviting people into, basically into her home, and her home was, her home was this, you know, big building in, in the beginning. It was down in, um, in uh, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Mott Street in Little Italy. It's where my mother grew up. Um, and these are the people that um, have really fallen through every single social net, every single um, crack in society, both economically and socially. Um, and these are people that, when, when they arrived at her door, she quickly realized that they would be staying there for life. That there was no kind of like, I've had people ask, people in, in um, social, social services ask me, well, what are the outcomes of the Catholic worker? And I'm like, we are speaking a different language here. There are no outcomes, you know, unless you can, unless you try to measure the value of love, um, there, there are no outcomes. There's no rehabilitation. There's no, um, you know, sometimes people are able to, to stay at the worker you know, regain their stability and move on and, um, and, you know, get a job. But for the most part, this is not true. This, th these are the uh, poorest of the poor, and poor not just in economical terms, but in terms of spirit, that they have been absolutely wounded and most often permanently wounded by life. So um, this is not easy work. 
and it can't be framed, um, I think, in a lot of ways that we frame it now. Um, one of the things that, that's really hard to describe, now I'm just assuming that you know about my grandmother, and, um, and I hope that throughout the talk that um, I'll be able to fill in what, what perhaps you don't know. Um, you know, usually I start off with a very clear biography of her, but for some reason this morning I can't seem to get my head around it, and maybe it's because um, I've, been t I've been talking two, one or two times a week <laughs> through the, every single day this week, so I'm a, I'm a little bit fried, so I apologize for that. Um, and I never prepare for these talks, so whatever comes out of my mouth is what comes out of my mouth, and, um, and um, hopefully, you know, it's really important for me, the Q&A part, um, really important, because that's, that's how I keep this alive for myself, um, because it is an ongoing process of trying to understand, trying to process, process, I'm in a different country now, um, what happened to me growing up with my grandmother and, and her example and her life, growing up with the Catholic worker, growing up and also with my mother and her version of the Catholic worker. My mother uh, was what I consider was the very first Catholic worker. She was um, eight years old when my grandmother started the movement. And, um, and she had her own, her own life. She got married and had nine kids. I'm the youngest of nine. And, um, but she kept her own notion of what the Catholic worker was as well as she could as a, as a, um, what turned out to be a single mother of nine. Um, so there's these, these, these immense two women who are, um, and, and this is what I really, really was so important for me to do in this book is to tell my mother's story because her story is the story of the Catholic worker, is the story of Dorothy Day. Um, because everything that my grandmother spoke about, my mother had to live. You know, she spoke about voluntary poverty, um, houses of hospitality, um, you know, living living a life. And I'm I'm reluctant to 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 put this in a framework of a Christian life. Um, my my grandmother was firmly Catholic, no doubt about that. And she's so firmly Catholic that she is now in the process of being um, being examined. For canonization, and I think that's probably as firmly Catholic as one can one can be. Um, but my my mom had a different path. Um, she was my grandmother was a convert to Catholicism. She was thirty when she was conditionally baptized into the Catholic Church. She came from a, a background of family of non practicing Episcopalians. Um, so she really, you know, she did not grow up in in a religious household. My mother, on the other hand, was raised from the get-go as a Catholic. She went to Catholic boarding schools. Um, she went through the, the whole, the whole educational system as a, as a Catholic, and she left the church um, in maybe her mid forties. She started a process of leaving the church, and she left, and she never returned. So there's been these two interesting um, influences on my life. You know, my grandmother and her faith, her incredibly deep faith, that kept her going. You know, 50 years of living at the Catholic Worker, being part of the Catholic Worker, which was so difficult for her. She was a woman that loved her privacy, loved silence, loved beauty, and the Catholic Worker was noisy, it was chaotic. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of um, difficulties that she had, and she stuck with it. She never left. Well, she tried to take a sabbatical once. She was going to leave the Catholic Order for a year, and she only managed to stay away for six months. 
And that's the only time that she was, she kind of stepped back from the worker. So almost 50 years of this incredibly difficult life. Um, and then there's my mom, you know, who said, well, I, I, I cannot be a Catholic in all good conscience. And, um, and she had her reasons too, and I understand her reasons absolutely. So I have both of these, these um, women, very powerful women, each in her own right, seemingly opposites, and yet I know both of them absolutely in my genes, in the marrow of my bones. I understand my, my grandmother's faith absolutely, and I understand my mother's, um, what, what she referred to is, um, she said she died believing that she had lost her faith. And I think that's a, um, it's a tragedy that she felt that. I do not believe it was true. I believe basically she had a different faith and um, she couldn't yet find a language for it in the face of this powerful symbolism and language of the Catholic Church that was very hard for her to, to find her own way. But um, so here I am, you know, holding both of these things, seeming, seemingly contradictory, but yet they both um, exist within me. And, and that's really um, pretty much the, the story of my life <laughs> right there, is that, that I have these two amazing examples of people. Um, now, what, I, what I'd like to do, I guess I should give you kind of like a, an, an overview of Dorothy Day, just to get us all somewhat on, this, on the same page. Um, you know, she, I started at the end, which is, is like her um, the process for canonization, which is actually going ahead quite quickly, as far as I know. Um, but uh, the path there is a very interesting path. You know, um, I think there's a, there's a great attraction to the stories of conversion that um, we are um, very much interested in, in seeing people who have seemingly started in one way and ended up another way. And um, my grandmother's story is a story of conversion, but it's a very long arc of a conversion. It really is through her entire life. She, she experienced, she, she took every single experience that, that she had and used it some way to grow and to change. One of the things that drives me up a wall when I, when I hear people speak about my grandmother is that they'll choose you know, statements that she said one year and said, well, she believed in this. And, um, and it's kind of like the Bible. You can find a, you can find a, um, you know, example to support whatever position you have. And, um, there's, you know, there's this complexity, there's, there's paradox, uh, there's contradictions. You know, my mother used to say, well, Dorothy had her contradictions, but that's okay. And I think that's a brilliant way of looking at it. Um, and it can drive us up a wall. It can drive people up a wall because it's like, you know, one of the one of the uh, common things to say at the Catholic Worker is um, what they refer to as WWDD. What would Dorothy do? <laughs> um, and I get that question a lot. You know, what would Dorothy do today? Um, it's a, it's a difficult question, but um, so there's this there's this tendency getting back to this this um, um, conversion, her conversion. How did she end up where she is today? on the path to canonization. Well, we don't know yet. It may not happen. It may fall apart. Um, she can provoke people, but um, it seems likely. Um, so so this, this arc, I mean, it's a, um, uh, I mean, it's a fabulous story, and it is full of paradox, and it is full of moments that um, people have tried to cherry pick, and I'm saying, no, don't cherry pick anything with Dorothy Day, because um, 
because you'll find something else that she said that was exactly the opposite. Um, she was born in 1897. She, she, her father was a journalist. Her um, three brothers became journalists. She became a journalist um, in 1916 during a, a time of great upheaval in the U.S. It was just before World War One. There was a, uh, she was in New York City at this time, and she was working for the New York Call, a socialist paper, and she was really getting a, an incredible education in um, the uh, labor unions, the, the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, the, um, the IWW, the uh, anarchists, all of the, the, these movements that were really gaining great power during this time. Um, and she was, she was there listening to it all. She was able to, at the age of 18, well, 19, I can't remember when, uh, she interviewed Trotsky. Um, he was coming through New York City at this time. I would love to have been a fly in the wall for that. Um, so she was, she, at a very young age, threw herself into the radical world of New York City and then the literary world of New York City. She became um, very good friends with Eugene O'Neill, the playwright at that time. Um, and it was an amazing time. I mean, there was, there was incredible fermentation in, in people's thoughts. There was real challenging challenges to the, the, the normal uh, social order and political order and, um, and uh, economic order through these, these movements, you know, and not only politically, but um, in the literary world, too. There was great changes happening in, in um, writing and in music and in art. Um, it, was, it really was extraordinary. It really, mo the world was moving out of this kind of 19th century sensibility into something that was strange and um, scary for many people. And she was right there she, as a young woman, 18, 19, 20. She was, um, um, her first arrest was at the age of 20 in, in D.C. She was arrested for picketing for uh, the right for women's vote suffrage, women's suffrage, and um, that was a formative moment for her, her first arrest. It was, uh, it was terrifying. She didn't expect it. She, she kind of went down to New York, uh, went down to D.C. from New York on a lark. A very good friend of her just said, we need women to get arrested. And, um, and she said, okay, I have nothing to do tonight. I'll head down. Um, and what happened was, um, was totally unexpected. At that moment, um, President Wilson decided to to use this group of women that were just arrested as an example to shut women up um, because they were they were being quite vocal vocal and what they were doing is they would they would get arrested uh, for like public nuisance or I don't know you know something non non political and uh, then they would be released immediately and so what the women were doing is when they were released they'd go home change their clothes come back onto the picket line be rearrested go home, change the clothes, come back to the picket line. So it was just this constant um, flow of, of women being arrested. And, and just when my grandmother was arrested, they decided to uh, stop that process, and they were sent to a, um, a notorious work camp in Virginia where the women were, were um, abused, both physically and emotionally. And um, my grandmother was beaten quite severely by the guards. Um, and, you know, they were threatened by to have dogs set on them. Um, you know, it was, it was, a, it was quite a, um, a shock. And, you know, these women were not used to this. These were um, very well-known, very well-connected, upper-class uh, white women who, who were being sent to this camp. And, um, of course, that really hit the news nationally, and President Wilson was forced to um, pardon them. And then three years later, uh, women did get the vote. 
um, interesting, a little side note to that is that um, even though my grandmother was at the forefront of that and served 30 days in prison for, for that, she never voted in her life. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of, of um, this, um, you know, the, this, this education. And um, I just want to kind of, I won't go through a lot of, of what happened, but, you know, my grand, grandmother's history is the history really of the U.S. of the 20th century. I mean, every major event she was involved with somehow, it really was quite extra, extraordinary. She had a, a nose not only for the important events, but also the most interesting people and what they're doing. And this was, this was um, uh, all her life, that, that she really had an amazing instinct to know just where the action was. Um, and this pretty much continued, but she also went through a series of very private tragedies. Um, when she was um, 22, she fell in love with a newspaper man and uh, got pregnant and had an abortion. And um, this was a uh, this was an, um, a dangerous abortion. Um, she she got very ill. She thought she was dying. Um, she survived, obviously, but she believed that she could never have a child ever again. That it was so uh, physically damaging. And um, and this caused her a great deal of grief. Um, she did fall in love with a uh, with a man. Eventually, six years later, Foster Batroom, my grandfather, and she did get pregnant, and she had a child, my mother, Tomla. Now, this moment was, um, this is another reason why, I mean, there's many, many books written about my grandmother. There's many, um, many papers, both academic, you know, about her. And um, the reason, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is that no one, talks about her as a mother, and it was her motherhood that started her on this path of where she ended up. It was her motherhood that started her on the uh, becoming a Catholic and uh, starting a Catholic worker. You know, she didn't mean to start a movement. That was pure accidental. But, um, you know, to me, that was the moment where she, that was the moment where she said, this is a miracle. This is a, uh, you know, the birth of my daughter is something that I'm not going to squander. And, um, and she didn't know what that meant. She had no idea what that meant. So she had my mom baptized as a Catholic. And at this point, um, neither my grandmother nor my grandfather were Catholic. Um, my grandfather was, was atheist, very determinedly so, and remained atheist um, throughout his life. But the biggest sticking point, the reason why the relationship didn't work out, ultimately is that he refused to marry my grandmother. He did not believe in marriage. He said, marriage is a tyranny for men, women, and children. And uh, he stuck by that, that belief his entire life. But he also loved her, um, and he loved my mom. Um, but the, my grandmother, with her, with her newfound religion, she, she became um, conditionally baptized as a Catholic, um, in the months after she baptized my mom, and um, and it became clearer and clearer to her that um, she wanted marriage, and um, so it, it kind of took a while. You know, these things take a while. Uh, relationships kind of break up, and then they come back together, and they break up. But um, she was eventually. 19, my mom was born in 1926, and uh, eventually in 1932, my grandmother reached the point where she was like, "Okay, we're ending this." I want to get married. 
and um, she made the break. Now, this wasn't, people ask, well, what, you know, how did the relationship continue? The relationship between my grandfather and my grandmother continued as, a, as friendship, um, very close friends, until the day my grandmother died. Um, they were very much um, in touch with each other. Towards the end, they were calling each other uh, every day, um, or he would come over and visit. He lived in Greenwich Village. Uh, my mother, my grandmother lived in um, the East Village in Manhattan. Um, and also another thing interesting happened in 1932, which is when these things happened all together, which is quite extraordinary. Um, she, she, for the first time, she was very clear, you know, this relationship has to end. She goes down to, to Washington, D.C. as a journalist. She's working as a journalist all this time. Um, and she's covering the hunger marches that were happening in D.C. at this time. This was the Great Depression. It was the, the, the U.S. was just in complete turmoil. She goes down. She's covering the, the marches. And she's seeing her old friends, the radicals, out on the street. And she's been struggling. She's been a Catholic now for five years. And she's struggling with trying to reconcile her newfound faith with her radicalism, her desire to to um, to work with immigrants, she lived in a, a densely populated immigrant area in um, Lower East Side, Manhattan. You know, she she had learned all this stuff as a journalist about, about labor rights, um, um, social justice, all these things that were being spoken of, and it was not being spoken about in the Catholic Church. And she couldn't figure out, well, is, is, am I going to be permanently divided in two because of this? You know, that there's no bridge between faith and social justice. Um, and she didn't know what to do. So, so um, she returned to New York City, and uh, within a week or two weeks, not sure how long, but shortly thereafter, she, uh, after asking herself, well, where are the Catholics in this, these struggles for, for um, social justice? Where am I? You know, what can I do? She returns to New York City and she meets a man named Peter Morn, who is uh, from France. He comes from a long line of peasants. He's an ex-Christian um, brother, incredibly well-educated, very well-educated, but living the life of a complete um, uh, a day laborer, basically. He owned only the clothes on his back. He believed in voluntary poverty. Um, he, and, he, and maybe books in his pockets. He always had big pockets so he could hold his books. Um, which he would give away and then get a new book. And um, he, he came to my grandmother with um, the teaching, the, the Catholic teaching, teachings of social justice. He said, here are the encyclicals from the popes. Here are the teachings of the church fathers on social justice. And this was just explosive to her. She had never heard of it. She had been a Catholic for five years. Not one single person, priest or otherwise, had told her about the church's teachings on social justice. She had no idea. And this just, she was like, we have to talk about this. We have to write about this. Um, because, you know, she was a writer. And so, um, and then Peter also, in addition to this education that he provided her with, he also had a program of change. Now, his kind of, he liked to speak in, um, in catchphrases, or, and he, write, he liked to write what, what he called, um, came to call easy essays. And one of the things that he liked to say is, um, we want to make a world where it's easier to be good. And that really was the, the kind of the groundwork that they were starting from. And he had three points in this program. Roundtable discussions, which, which um, he believed that everyone was capable of being um, educated, 
that education wasn't just for the academics, that education had to be brought to the streets, and roundtables discussions were meant to be that. Clarification of thought, he'd call it. The second um, element of his program was houses of hospitality. And he meant that houses of hospitality, he meant for the bishops to open them, and they'd be run by priests. Um, his intention was not to open them, uh, open them himself. And then the third part was the uh, back to the land, the farming communes. That he said, there's no unemployment on the land. Um, we need to to grow what we eat and uh, eat locally. Um, he called it the Green Revolution. He was talking about all these things. This was in 1933, long before um, this became in, in the, um, the modern conscience, modern mind. Um, my grandmother said, okay, let's start a newspaper. I'm going to tell people about the, the church's teachings on social justice. And um, so 1933, Union Square, New York City, which is a hotbed of a lot of radical uh, revolutionary talk, um, she, started, she and a group of friends started handing out the paper, the Catholic Worker paper, which is still in existence today, um, sold for a penny a copy back then. It still sells for a penny a copy now. Um, and... Um, and she was selling it next to people who were selling, you know, the Daily Worker, the communist paper. And people didn't believe her at first. They really did not believe her. It's like, um, the church doesn't have any of these teachings. You're lying. And, and she said, no, I, these, here it is. Here it is. And, um, and so then before she knew it, before she knew it, people were knocking at her door saying, well, you're writing about these houses of hospitality. Where are they? And, um, and she was like, oh, okay. All right. All right. Let's start one. So uh, before she knew it, um, she had a movement. She started a movement. She never intended to start a movement, the Catholic worker movement. And um, it's still going strong today, you know, decades after her death. There's um, maybe 250 houses around North America. I can't really say because houses open and close all the time. It's, it's, it's an unusual, it's not an organization. You know, they like to, uh, Peter Moore liked to call it an organism, not, not an organization. You know, anyone can call themselves a Catholic worker. There's just really um, two, you know, basics. That is, you're inspired by the works of mercy. A Catholic worker is based on the works of mercy. That, that you can call their mission statement. And second, you're inspired by Dorothy Day. And other than that, you know, there, there are Catholic workers of such wide variety. You know, they, they look around their, their areas, their towns, their neighborhoods and say, okay, well, there's a need here. Whatever the need is, whatever calls them. I mean, there, there's, I think, you know, different things, different problems call people individually, I believe anyway. You know, I think that, um, for some, it, it's, uh, working what we, what we would refer to as hard, hardcore. Um, hospitality, and that is working with the homeless on the streets of the big cities. Um, and it runs all the way to maybe one family just bringing in um, um, a single mom and her kids and helping her, you know, get the fine ground underneath her feet. Um, people work with immigrants. The Houston Catholic worker works with um, with uh, Latino immigrants. Um, I mean, really, there's in the 80s, there was a lot of Catholic workers working with AIDS patients. You know, it really is is anything that that what cracks your heart wide open um, is what you're called to do. And there's a lot of Catholic workers that are not Catholic. Um, there was for many many years a Protestant Catholic worker down in Atlanta, Georgia. They just recently closed. Um, people are aging out. <laughs> people started these things in the 60s and 70s, and now they're re you know finally saying, "And we don't think we can continue this anymore." It's hard work.
um, there was a there was a Mennonite Catholic worker. Um, there are certainly Catholic workers who are atheists. Um, there are Catholic workers who are um, Muslim. Um, there really is a, a variety of people called and and happy to call themselves Catholic workers, which I think is is amazing. I think it's part of the genius of why this this organization still exists. Um, so anyway, uh, my grandma died in 1980, and since then there's been a, a growing growing awareness of who she was and what what she did. Now, when she was alive, um, people did refer to her as a saint, and um, she very famously said, "Don't call me a saint." I don't want to be dismissed so easily. And um, this has created a lot, a lot of uh, questions in people's mind. To me, it makes perfect sense. I can totally hear her saying it. That's exactly something she would say. She had a sh sharp tongue, and she had no patience for people who um, put her on a pedestal. Um, she felt that, um, that you know, call her saint and say, oh, she's so good, and then you just go on doing your thing, your, you know, go on with your life. And she's saying, no, you can't do that. You know, don't put me in the, you know, on the pedestal and then, then walk forth without doing the work. You need to do it. Um, and so, and, and also, you know, she actually derived great strength from saints. This was not a dismissive statement about saints, not at all. I mean, she, she was powerfully influenced by saints. But um, she just didn't want want us to. There's a tendency in, in the Catholic word, world for the past, I'd say, 100 years of kind of um, making saints as these perfect people who um, had no human foibles um, at all, and uh, which is actually not true historically in the church. The saints are full of uh, crazy, terrible, difficult people. Um, so um, I think she was kind of responding, responding to that. Um, but anyway, she is, in 2000, Cardinal O'Connor of New York City formally opened her cause, her canonization. 2012, the U.S. Conference of, uh, the Conference of U.S. Bishops all unanimously um, agreed and supported the cause for canonization. Um, and it's, there's, a, there's a, a guild in New York City that's moving it forward, and it has gone to Rome. So, you know, it really is in the process. Um, in 2015... The um, uh, Pope Francis, in his talk to the U.S. Congress, mentioned four great Americans, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., um, Thomas Merton, and Dorothy Day, which was an extraordinary moment. It really was an extraordinary moment. And, and also a very funny moment because apparently um, someone who had been at the, at the Congress at the time listening to his speech said that as soon as he said, as soon as Pope Francis said Dorothy Day, all the media people were frantically Googling her to find out who she was because <laughs> they had no idea. They had no idea. So, um, so it really has been quite extraordinary, this whole process. So anyway, um, what I'd like to do now is um, I'd like to read a little bit from my book. And then I guess um, Dean has some questions for me that I'll try to answer and, and then open it up for general questions. All right, I've been requested to read two Two short stories. Um, one thing that I, uh, you know, this story is not easy to read. Um, my grandmother and my mother had lived very difficult lives. Um, a great deal of suffering, a great deal of mistakes, a great deal of misunderstandings. Um, and in it, I have to warn you, to those who haven't read the story, it is hard to read. Um, but also, it, it, there's a lot of humorous moments. Um, the Catholic worker 
has a lot of humorous moments and you have to have a really good sense of humor to survive it. Um, so there, there's, um, two, well, one segment that, um, I refer to as cars, um, because both my, my grandmother and my mother love to drive. So I'm going to read this, this little section. In my mind, my mother's last years intertwine with my grandmother's, those years when all was stripped away bit by bit. And out of the losses of, out of all the losses of old age, I first think of Dorothy's and Tamar's love of driving and of their cars, a long parade of battered vehicles that shouldn't have been able to run. Somehow they were always able to head down the road when things got too unbearable or too complicated or when Dorothy got too ill-tempered and knew she had to seek refuge at the beach or at Tamar's or at her sister's. Those hours on the road were precious to Dorothy as they were the only time she felt free. She liked to make a pilgrimage, she called it, every year in which she visited Catholic workers around, Catholic worker houses and farms around the country packing lunches for the road of peanut butter and honey on whole wheat bread. Guarding the peace in one's own heart, she called it. And when she had no car, she sat next to strangers on buses and trains who did not know who she was and did not weigh her down with her expectations, admiration, or criticism. On the road, she was anonymous. On the road, she was neither here nor there. If I had a good car, she said, I'd be on the road always. Dorothy had a reputation as a terrible driver, but I know of only one accident when Tamar was three years old and Dorothy had just learned how to drive in California. She fell in love with driving, beginning with her first car, the second-hand Model T Ford she had bought for $85 and after one lesson practiced alone on the back streets of Los Angeles. On the return from Mexico in 1930, she bought another Model T she drove around Staten Island researching for her gardening column. The first Catholic worker car was a green Ford truck in which they transferred vegetables from Easton, the farm, to Mott Street, the House of Hospitality, and returned with a truckload of people singing in Gregorian chant. Next, they had a panel truck, which was good for transporting vegetables, but not for people, and someone fell out of the back of the steep hill to the upper farm. A year later, John Filger was transporting a, boat, a goat in an old beat-up sedan when the goat jumped out onto Easton's town square, and both John and the goat were arrested. They had a 1928 Columbia that broke down in the Delaware Water Gap while moving from farm to farm, a 1936 Buick that belonged to a television actress, and a 1932 Chevrolet donated by a fellow who had lost his license for drinking. Dorothy drove that Chevy to West Virginia to visit Tamar in the late 40s, and when Stanley's brother... I'll talk a little bit about Stanley later on. When Stanley's brother drove down with Dorothy, as they entered a mile-long tunnel on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, he asked her, Where are the lights? It doesn't have any, Dorothy replied. The car had broken headlights and no windows, and the wind blew through the cracks in the floor. Dorothy's history with cars was a history of gas pedals going through the floor, gear sticks coming off in her hand, the battery falling out onto the ground just as she arrived home, or windshield wipers breaking off in the middle of heavy rainstorms. I'll tell you what's miraculous about Dorothy, Tomer said. She could get any car to run. Um, 
There's another little bit that I'd like to read. Um, I mentioned Stanley. Um, the Catholic worker attracted people when they were very young, and they stayed for the rest of their lives, and Stanley was one of those. Now, I also hear people in these talks, this is great, um, people say, oh, I met your grandmother you know, once for 10 minutes when I was uh, 18 years old. My life has never been the same since. Um, and this, this is a common story. You know, she had an incredibly powerful impact on people. And Stanley was one of these. He arrived at the Catholic worker when he was 18 years old. Um, he remained except for a few times when he went off and tried to separate himself from the worker. But he would always come back and he died. Um, he died at Mary House, which was the last house that my grandmother opened in 1976. My grandmother was, um, was 79 years old at the, at the time. And Stanley was like a, a brother to my, my mother. He was an uncle to us. He was like a great uncle to the next generation, my siblings' children. Um, and, this, and he's only one, one of the characters of the Catholic worker. When I uh, originally submitted this, this manuscript for publication, it was twice the size, it was twice the length, because I, had, I couldn't talk about the Catholic worker. I t couldn't talk about my family without this, this, this whole wide cast of characters. Um, but the publisher said, too long, take him out. And she also said, and this I disagree with this, she also said, people are only interested in Dorothy Day. And, um, and I was like, no, you don't understand. You don't get it. And I, um, and um, Catholic workers understand when I say this because the movement is the people, you know. It, it's it's, um, and that's what that's how we see. I mean, that's what my grandmother always said. This is how she saw the face of God was with the people that that um, she was living with. So um, anyway, I just want to read this bit about um, when I was fifteen and I um, started going down to the Catholic worker city houses. Uh, Mary House, which which um, my grandmother, um, as I said, opened in 1976. And Mary House, um, she opened it for women. It was an old music school, um, so all of the the, um, the bedrooms are these old uh, they're, they're these uh, practice rooms for the musicians, and it's still in existence today. Mary House is still there. It was where my grandmother spent the last three years of her life after her heart heart attack in 1976, um, and it was where she died. And her room is still there. Um, and I, I have the privilege of being able to stay in it when I go down there. Um, so this is this is me at the age of 15 or 16 um, coming down to the Catholic Worker City Houses. Now, I had grown up visiting the, the farm. There's a farm in upstate New York, and my mom would pile us all nine kids into the car, and we'd head down to Tivoli, the farm. Um, and uh, she always had you know these very tiny cars, you know, the Volkswagen Bug, whatever. And I don't know how we all fit in, but, you know, we did somehow. Another one of those miracles. But um, and I also remember, you know, those those little those little compartments in the back of the old bugs, VWs. Um, I remember being able to not only me sit in them, but my brother Hilaire, who was three years older than us, the two of us could sit in that little little thing. I don't, I think I may have made that memory up, but um, <laughs> but I, I still I see it so vividly. So so anyway, um, so when I was fifteen and sixteen, I was old enough to start traveling down to New York City by myself, um, and so I started. Um, uh, experiencing the, the, you know, the city and the city houses. So I just want to read a, a short, short story about this. I was 15 when I first visited the Catholic worker in New York City with a group of friends from school. A man began throwing rocks at us a block away from the house, and we fled. It was 1975, and the city, worn, filthy, and bleak, was near bankruptcy. The following summer, I showed up at Mary House six months after it opened. 
and this time I was met at the bus station by Stanley. Everyone needs a guide when entering the wilderness, and it was Stanley who helped me through those first encounters with the Catholic worker city houses, with his Brooklyn accent, receding hairline, broad smile, and round stomach that he would pat gently and say, too much Catholic worker soup. I continued to show up for short visits during school breaks, and Lena Rizzo greeted me as she greeted everyone who walked into Mary House. In the summer, she lived in Union Square on the sidewalks between the trash bins and walk signs, surrounded by her belongings, which were kept in canvas U.S. postal bags she carried in a supermarket cart. In winter, she lived on the bench in the Mary House foyer. She refused to stay in her room, where she spent her days sewing clothes with large running stitches. Garrulous and friendly, she had her own style of language. Is Doris on the microphone, she called out, which I learned to interpret as, is Helen on the telephone? She asked everyone who passed, got a cigarette? She even asked Mother Teresa of Calcutta when she came to visit. No, I'm sorry I don't, Mother Teresa replied. To which Lena said the same thing she said to everyone who didn't have a cigarette. Well then, what good are you? <laughs> Lena ended up dying at Mary House, as many people did. So anyway, um, if if we have time, there's just one small segment I want to read, um, and this is this is a segment that I refer to as sainthood. After Tamar died, and we were going through her things, choosing which treasures we each wanted to keep. My sister Becky said, everything she had was broken. Every piece of Tamar's belongings had some damage. Furniture, dishes, vases, even the ceramic fish she used as a spoon holder on the stove. Becky sounded sad as she said this, as if Tamar felt she didn't deserve to have things that weren't broken. But maybe she was drawn to all things broken. Creatures, teenagers, ceramic fish, wanting to help heal them, help make them whole. Maybe she saw beauty in the cracked, chipped, and repaired. This is a paradox we all live with, this flawed vessel called to holiness. Dorothy said, What a variety of people called to be saints, crotchety, giddy, cranky ones, bibulous ones. Stanley said, People come to the worker expecting to find saints, and instead they find human beings. Tamar said, Everybody wants the other person to be a saint. She also once, with a slip of the tongue, referred to Dorothy as being tried for sainthood. Do you believe your mother is a saint? I asked Tamar during her last year. She surprised me, not that she answered. That would never have happened. But there was no dismissive flick of the hand, no vague shrug. Instead, her eyes lit up, and she laughed. In that last decade, when Tamar got back in touch with some of the old crowd going back to the 1930s, one of the men said to her, Dorothy was no saint. She laughed then too and didn't disagree, but neither did she agree. Again, she kept her own counsel. Tamar, ever practical and sensible, said the miracle of Dorothy's life is the Catholic worker, this modern-day parable of the loaves and fishes, and the church doesn't need to look any further. What riches she spread out about her, like St. Bridget's cloak, the one Bridget would hang on a sunbeam, and which, when she spread it out on the ground, 
grew and grew until it covered the countryside, a glint of silver running along its edge as it brought abundance and beauty everywhere it touched. That's the miracle. That cloak spread out to give comfort and shelter to our most wounded in body and soul, as Dorothy handed out riches recklessly and with abandon to whomever she met. Thank you. Thanks for listening. In the next episode, I'll ask Kate some more questions about her research, her writing, and her family. Until then, it would really help us out if you went over to iTunes to give us a review. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook as the Institute for Christian Studies, and on Twitter at INSCHR, I-N-S-C-H-R. You can also send us an email with any thoughts, corrections, or comments, or whatever, at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. See you then.